the steadfastness, the resilience, the kindness, the generosity of spirit that I had seen in these darkest times when people give, when people share the very little they have with complete strangers, when they look after the children of others without question, even not knowing who they are, when doctors and nurses move from one hospital to another whenever their hospitals are destroyed, when people share their houses with strangers and you are filled with immense pride. Welcome to This is Palestine. I'm Deanna Butu. In this, our 100th episode, I speak with Dr. Hassan Abusitti, a renowned British-Palestinian doctor who, just two days into Israel's bombing campaign on the Gaza Strip, decided to head to Gaza to provide life-saving medical treatment to Palestinians. For 43 days, he remained in Gaza, and through his social media accounts and through his interviews, gave the world a glimpse into the impact on Palestinians and on the healthcare system in Gaza of Israel's siege and bombing campaign. As we record, today is Israel's 70th day of Israel's bombing campaign, during which time Israel has killed more than 20,000 Palestinians, with thousands more remaining trapped under the rubble. Israeli bombs have injured an estimated 50,000 Palestinians. Earlier this week, the UN announced that the healthcare system has collapsed with infectious disease now spreading. Dr. Obasitya, along with his colleagues, had to conduct surgeries, oftentimes without any disinfectants, sometimes in the dark, using only the light from a cell phone. Many doctors were forced to amputate limbs without anesthesia. In today's episode, we speak with Dr. Hassan Obasitya about the impact on the healthcare system and about what is happening in Gaza. Dr. Hassan Abbasitti is a multi-award-winning plastic and reconstructive surgeon with a reputation as one of the world's leading specialists in craniofacial surgery, facial aesthetics, cleft lip and palate surgery, and trauma-related injuries. Dr. Abbasitti's pioneering research and innovation have transformed the faces and lives of his patients across the globe. Le Monde dubbed him as, quote, the man who fixes broken faces, unquote. In Gaza, he, along with the other doctors, are heroes. First, um, thank you, and, and thank you for, for being on the uh, This is Palestine podcast. Can you tell us what it was like to be a doctor in Gaza amid this most brutal bombing and invasion? I mean, I'm sure everybody's had this this experience, but do you know when, when you're in when you're in the sea and you're kind of caught off guard by a wave and you lose your footing for a split second and the wave kind of covers you and, and you're kind of try, struggling just to keep your head above water. And it always felt like that. It always felt that you've been hit by a wave that is above your ability to deal with it in terms of the sheer number of wounded and the intensity of the violence and the manifestations in terms of, of injury that you were having to deal with. At the same time, as the, as the, the wounded increased in number, you were 
ability to deal with them, your uh, 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 capacity in terms of material and medication, and in terms of the number of hospitals that were still functioning, kept decreasing. And so you were in a situation where you just, I mean, almost like it became surreal that, you you know, even in a good day, when we managed to kind of have our anesthetist with us all day and, and do around, you know, 12 cases, you knew that each each um, air raid brought in another 80 to 150 wounded. And that somehow it just, you weren't able to kind of make a dent in this wave um, of killing that was happening. You know, one of the things that was, um, that became very apparent is the, the attack on hospitals was a critical component and is remains a critical component of Israel's attack on the Gaza Strip um, with, as you put it already, hospitals being forced to shut down. How is it that you even begin to respond to this? So I think what happened, and this is the critical part about the the, the attack on Ali Baptist Hospital, that it, Israel was testing international resolve. Uh, they found the least likely hospital to be attacked, the one that's linked to the International Council of Churches. It's run by a bishop in the Anglican Church in the UK. Really, of all of the hospitals, you thought this is the one. But they chose this one because they wanted to see whether what is what was a, a strategy uh, that lay at the heart of the war could be carried out. Um, the aim of the war is to turn Gaza into an uninhabitable place, and so that so that the 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 expulsion of Palestinians continues after the ceasefire by turning uh, uh, Gaza into a, a, a death world. And a critical component of creating the death world is is dismantling the health system. And so you start out with the most obvious, the most outlandish uh, target, and if the world doesn't respond, if the world immediately, unquestionably, latches on to the whole narrative of Palestinian missile misfiring, then uh, 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 then you you the, the, the answer came back loud and clear to the Israelis that this war can be unleashed on the health system. And that's why immediately after Al-Ahli, what we saw is the dismantlement of four children's hospitals, you know, Muhammad al-Durra, al-Nasr, Rantisi, all of these hospitals were the first wave. Uh, and then you started uh, attack on the next likely, least likely target, which is the Quds Hospital, which is run by the Palestine Red Crescent Society. That's part of the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent. And, and that's run out of Ramallah. And then, so all of these, you know, with each attack, the Israelis were, were emboldened to the point where it, the, the, the violence became a spectacle. When you lay out the dead bodies of premature children in Nasser Hospital for the world to see it, because it's easy to hide that uh, war crime by just burying these kids in the in, in in a corner in the you know behind the hospital. But what was what was done is is that they were literally laid out so that people would find them and see them once the Israeli forces withdrew in a kind of performative violence uh, uh, that is that is that that was as a re, is as a result of 
the unquestioning way in which not just not just um, Western media, but even Western human rights organizations had completely adopted the narrative of the Israelis, which did two things. It continued the idea of securitization of Palestinian lives, i.e., you know, if there is nothing underneath Shifa, then the people above Shifa deserve to live. But if there is a, a base underneath Shifa, then it's okay to bomb them. It's okay to bomb 50,000 internally displaced. It's okay to, to bomb 2,000 wounded. And the second one is the idea that despite everything, whatever, regardless of how outlandish the Israelis' story is, it's up to the Palestinians to disprove it. And so it's up to continuously for the victim to say, this is not true. On one hand, they can see be the Israelis butchering uh, civilians. But every time there is a narrative about Shifa, we have to disprove it. About Nasr we, or Ramtisi, we have to disprove it. About Al-Ahli, we have to disprove that story. And it's it's a kind of, you know, that complicitous. And it continued with the Human Rights Watch report, uh, uh, where, you know, Human Rights Watch did not interview the CEO of the hospital, did not interview the medical uh, director of the hospital who'd been threatened twice by an Israeli army officer, did not interview any of the doctors, did not interview any of the victims, any of the survivors, any of the doctors who treated the victims to see about the wounds, did not have access to the uh, signs, did not explain why in the history of Palestinian missiles never has there been a single missile that had killed that many people because they're all homemade missiles. All of these things continue. And despite the fact that there is a body of incidents about the targeting of Palestinian hospitals, we still have to go back and say, yeah, but maybe this one, this was a misfire. Why would it be a misfire? Why, I mean, why would everything else fit in and this one be a misfire and Shifa be a base and the Rantisi have someone inside it. You know, now they're peddling some moronic story about the fact that the, the Israeli hostages were be, were being hidden in UNRWA employees' houses as if UNRWA employees' houses had any kind of uh, uh, sanctity to them that you'd think it would be safe to put. It just, you know, it, it's that continuous a uh, 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 process in which not only do you have to put up with the violence, you have to put up with the fact that you are, you have to prove that you are a deserving victim at each step. Otherwise, then you deserve what you get and your kids deserve what they get. It's classic uh, dehumanization. And it's dehumanization that, of course, is, which is one of the tools to lead to, to genocide and to ethnic cleansing. You left around, I think it was day 43, um, and you talked about making Gaza unlivable. In your opinion, is it unlivable? I think siege as another tool of war will aim to make it unlivable. I think uh, 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 given half a chance, the people of Gaza who have shown heroism and uh, a steadfastness that is mythological, are able to rebuild Gaza. The problem is siege is not a passive process. It is an active weapon of war. And my fear is that the siege will ensure that the houses 
60 to 70 percent of Gaza's houses remain destroyed, that the schools remain shut, that the universities remain shut, and that the 50,000 wounded will, will die slowly in front of their families because they will never be given access to treatment, either by teams going in or evacuated for treatment abroad. Uh, uh, that's that's my worry. Is is that the, the siege, as a of, as Israel's favorite tool of war, will continue once the bombs and the blasts and the world's attention is moved on? For me, one of the most harrowing um, tweets that I saw you post, yours and others, was the what was being used as medical equipment given the siege and given the blockade. And given the fact that there was a decision taken very early on to cut off fuel, electricity, water, um, and food supplies, and obviously medical supplies. And that was when you were first describing the use of vinegar and then describing um, amputations without um, without using any anesthesia. Can, can you talk about those things if, if you're up to it? So from the very, I mean, when you think about the fact that Gaza's total bed capacity was 2,500 before the war, you realize that very quickly on things were running out. Initially, disinfectants, and that's when, you know, I started using this bizarre cocktail that I had made up, which is a third uh, washing up liquid, a third vinegar, and a third water, just to keep the wounds clean and to keep my other disinfectants just for the area of the surgery. And then slowly, specialist goes for and dressings for burns, even though we had had over 100, 150 full, you know, large surface area burns. Um, and then every day became more and more difficult. Every day we'd run out, you know, we'd run out of morphine in Shifa soon after, and we were giving effectively just Panadol and Advil intravenous after the surgery. Uh, and then uh, eventually in Ali ketamine, and, and by the end it was everything. But every day you'd have to make decisions, but not only decisions about what you can use and what you have available. The triage of what is treatable and what is not treatable then became even more and more difficult because your capacity to treat got less and the number of wounded got more. And so you're making life and death decisions about who to take to the operating really based on the ability to, to save at that particular moment. And people died of wounds that shouldn't be savable in any other circumstance, but that they didn't have, we didn't have what it, we needed to treat. We're looking now at Israel probably killing about 10,000 children, if not more. Those are the numbers that we know. And as you've already said, about 50,000 wounded. One can safely assume that half of those who have been injured are, are, um, are children. These are children who are suffering chemical burns, uh, amputations. How do you think that this is going to impact an entire generation of Palestinians? I think that's, that's again, part of the catastrophization. That's part of creating a self-sustaining catastrophe is that you you create a, a, a society who is so, um, by exigency, uh, uh, so wrapped up in, in, in dealing with its day-to-day -day catastrophe. Parents trying to tend for their wounded children, 
I mean, you know, amputations before before the war, we I had been through my research work involved with the pediatric uh, limb prosthetic center in Gaza, and we had around 180 children from previous wars who were still children who had war-related amputation. We now believe that there's between 1,000 and 1,500 amputations from this war alone in children. If you can imagine, we know from the medical literature that a child who's had an amputation in war will require, on average, between 8 and 12 surgeries by the time they become adults. And every six months, they have to have their prostheses changed because they're outgrowing these prostheses. All of these details are an, a, an intrinsic part of the master plan for Gazte after the bones and the bullets stop so that that society is incapable of basically barely surviving dealing with the injuries and the consequences of these injuries. The thing about war wounds is, is that they always become a, an almost like a biological archive of the war. The wound will carry the story of this war for the lifetime of, of the wounded uh, in a way that is much more permanent and less likely to ever change with changing political fortunes than other forms of art content. And these children will always carry in their bodies the story of this war, the story of the complicity of those supported this war, and the complicity of those who remained silent in this war. The amputated limbs and the dismembered and disfigured bodies of Palestinian children are an archive uh, to everyone and everything that has been done in this war not just the perpetrators, the Israelis, but those who have profited from these weapons and those who profit from the political fallout and those who have colluded with the Israelis. And, and, and if the siege is imposed uh, uh, after the war, then people will eventually leave. And that's the aim. It's not to create, if you can't create a refugee crisis because the political fallout is too much. You create an illegal immigrant crisis by making Gaza an uninhabitable place. And people will get on the boats and become illegal immigrants that cross the Mediterranean. Or or end up in the Egyptian Sinai Peninsula. Um, you know, one of the things that, as I've been watching this, that has become apparent is that if, if there isn't a push um, on the part of the Israelis, if if you think of the long-term consequences, if you want health care, go to Egypt. You want education, go to Egypt. You want a proper house, go to Egypt. You want to go to university, go to Egypt or elsewhere. And it's precisely this plan that uh, that we see unfolding as we speak. Um, I mean, for me, this is ben Benny Morris's war. You know, this is Benny Morris's war. You know, Benny Morris, if you remember, after his first book, had a kind of recantation uh, and a change of heart and said that, you know, the biggest mistake that the Zionist movement committed was to allow Palestinians to remain in Gaza and the West Bank and the Galilee and and, and uh, in Musella. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, look at the what the Americans did with the Native Americans. You know, the world will be outraged for a while and then 
it'll be a historical detail. Same with the Turks and the and the Greeks. And I think this is this is you know this is the war. This is the, the Israeli public, uh, uh, both uh, uh, um, institutions and individuals, are in the final solution frame of mind. And the final solution is to get rid of Palestinians. I mean, how else can you explain? 400 doctors signing and then paying for a petition in the newspapers calling for the tar the bombing of Palestinian hospitals, yet expecting to be invited to, to scientific conferences in Europe and North America without any consequence, if that mind had completely shifted towards a kind of um, uh, self-fulfilling justification that the Palestinians had been so dehumanized within Israeli uh, psyche that they honestly believe the rest of the world shares their view of the Palestinians on, as being Amalek or or being subhuman uh, or human animals, as they referred to them. And 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 so the, these doctors really think that doctors in Paris and in London and, and in New York share the view of Palestinians, and so this would not impact their standing within medical uh, community uh, if their names were publicly made regarding the Palestinians. But do you think that it will affect them? We need to make sure that it does. We need to make sure that it does. We need to make sure that these doctors become known. Uh, 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 we need to translate this letter and we need to kind of highlight it. We need, they, they need to pay the consequences of, of what it, I mean, you're, I mean, you know much more than I do, but just recently, because by discussion with lawyers, the thing, the thing about genocide that makes it different to other crimes is intent. Intent is a much bigger part of 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 the crime, and and so intent is is so clearly laid out, and which kind of makes us realize that you know, Gaza is not the the last. Stop. This is the beginning. West Bank is going to be next. West Bank, they're already laying the ground for a war by targeting those uh, uh, locations and sectors of Palestinian society that would resist the war and resist expulsion. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, inside 48, the Green Line, it's continuing. It's continuing. And, 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 and the whole Israeli society is geared towards it. And so, you know, it's not just the kind of overt expulsion. Students are being made to feel so unwelcome in universities that they would look elsewhere for education. Uh, academics are made uh, to feel so unwelcome that they would look elsewhere for employment. Everything it, it is now, the whole Israeli society is geared towards expulsion as the final chapter of the Zionist project. It is very much indeed. And, uh, it's not just Benny Morris, but many of them, including the politicians who are saying the same thing. And I can tell you, somebody who lives in 48, that that we definitely feel it. You see signs all over the place that say, together we will win, um, or things like finish them, or uh, end Gaza. You know, you 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 definitely, definitely feel it when you're, when you're living here. Um, you know, I wanted to ask if the, you had any particular stories or any patients that you're still thinking of that stayed with you. But I have to tell you, they all stay with you, especially now that, that you know that the, the, the killing hasn't stopped. And you ask yourself every day what's happened to them. And you remi remember one of them and you're wondering, 
this child or this amputee or this, you know, um, every day these kids remain with you. And, 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 you know, when you hear about the malnutrition and about the shortage of drinking water or about the, the, you know, the other day when it started raining, I could just imagine these kids in the cold and, and wounded and, um, all of them, you know, and I remember their names. And your colleagues? My colleagues, you know, they shot one of my friends the other day. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I used to live in Ghazni. And uh, it's a place that never leaves you, no matter... You can leave it, but it never, it never ever um, leaves you. Uh, ever. And, and, and you're just... You're, you're in awe of them. You know, I mean, Muhammad Abayid, um, we started out the Lauda Jabalia when we had to evacuate the patients. We moved back to Shifa. We would uh, have cases together. He would always be cheerful. When I go, went to Ahli, uh, he stayed in Al Shifa Hospital and decided to remain with his patients uh, during the stage of, of Shifa Hospital. He only left when the Israelis withdrew. He then moved back to the Indonesian when the Indonesian hospital was bombed uh, he, and then evacuated. He moved back to Lauda and he got shot uh, while rounding on his patients, you know. Um, and, and you know, even the, 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 the colleagues who moved to the south, I know that they immediately, once they made sure their families are okay, they moved to, they, they went to the closest hospital. I mean, you know, the guys that I worked with in Shifa are now in, some of them are in the European hospital in Rafah. Some of them are in Nasir. Some of them are in Shadda al-Aqsa. E each and every one of them. What's your hope for Gaza? You see, in a in a kind of, and this is not bravado or kind of the usual kind of, you know, political rhetoric. I do believe we're closer now. So do I. Actually, it's interesting that you say that. So do I. So do I. Because the certain things that have happened in this war, uh, there is an old man who was uh, uh, with his with his um, son and and their family living in the corridor outside my outside the operating room because because at some stage the patient the the, the internally displaced were everywhere and uh, and he was telling me uh, um, and there's a kind of you know Arabic term for uh, uh, for a, a concierge or a caretaker in the building called Napur. And he was telling me, you know, all of our lives we thought that the enemy was Israel uh, and that behind Israel was the West. And this war made me realize, you know, Shlomo Natur. And, and, the, and the owner of the building is the United States. And Shlomo cleans the, 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 the stairs and collects the rent and fights with the, with the tenants. But at the end of the day, the building is owned by someone else, and 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 um, you, the U.S.'s decision to run this uh, 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 as a result of Israel's failure to maintain these unruly natives, uh, 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 and the fact that Israel has been shown to be just be a killing machine, nothing else, incapable of achieving anything, anything other than murder. Um, even now, even despite the 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 complete 
you know, imbalance of power between it and the Palestinians. All Israel can do is kill. That's it. You're absolutely right. I say this all the time. They're masters when it comes to perpetrating war crimes. E even if you look at the what, what they've done over the course of the past, we're on day 70 today. 70 days. All they've done is war crimes. That's it. There's been no dismantling of infrastructure. There's been no uh, getting to the... There's been the only infrastructure that they've gotten is civilian infrastructure to make life livable in, in the Gaza Strip. And, and that's it. That's it. The final question I wanted to ask you is, we've talked a little bit about this already, but how has this impacted you? It has impacted me just because you, you are so in all of these people, your people, that you feel you can <clears throat> take on the whole world. You know, the steadfastness, the, the resilience, the kindness, the generosity of spirit that I had seen in these darkest times when people give, when people share the very little they have with complete strangers, when they look after the children of others without question, even not knowing who they are, when doctors and nurses move from one hospital to another whenever their hospitals are destroyed, when people share their houses with strangers and you are uh, um, filled with with immense pride. Yeah, the dignity and the humanity that... To be part of this fear. Yeah. The dignity, the humanity that Gaza has shown the world is unparalleled, unmatched, unmatched. I don't know if there's anything you wanted to add. I think to echo the words of Bobby Sands, our day will come. Dr. Hassan, I don't know how to thank you, really. Um, thank you for everything. Thank you for everything. And inshallah, we will see you in Palestine very soon. Um, not uh, not to, to come treat our wounded, but to, to share and joy with us. Inshallah. Inshallah. Look after yourself and, and, and you too. God, you too. Take care. Bless you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to This is Palestine, a podcast brought to you by the Institute for Middle East Understanding. The IMEU is a nonprofit focused on giving you access to untold stories, facts, and expert sources on all things Palestine. For more information, please visit our website at www.imeu.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the IMEU. Please don't forget to subscribe. I'm Deanna Butu. Thanks for listening.